Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Perky with an extra hour of sleep, yeah? If you have any seat, if you could squish in a little, if there, we have any seats left, we have a number of people just standing, and if, if you want to make a new friend, raise your hand, tell them you got a seat next to you. Uh, we want to make sure everyone can get seated. Um, okay, uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, the New Testament, to Acts chapter 14. If you need a Bible to use, you should find one available uh, down in one of the uh, chair racks around you, Acts 14. Uh, and today we are picking up with a series that we started uh, a little earlier this year called Going Viral. We took a break for the summer, but we're going back to it. And it's a study of this ancient document we know as, we know as Acts. It's a document that records uh, how the early church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, it went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And uh, here's just a quick summary. Jesus said to his followers, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we read the book, that's what we see happen. The church in Jerusalem uh, grows from a handful of believers to over 15,000 people, uh, most of whom uh, in the face of persecution leave the uh, city and venture out into the surrounding region. And as they go, they embody the mission of Jesus, sharing the good news of God's love and grace, serving the physical and spiritual needs of the people, and inviting into community those who were racially and culturally different. And as a result, not only did Jewish men and women turn to Jesus, but also Samaritans, uh, Ethiopians, uh, a European soldier named um, Cornelius, he believes, he gets baptized along with some family and friends. And all of these people, um, Jews, Samaritans, Africans, Romans, uh, they were spiritually transformed, their lives were changed forever. And what's really interesting is that these same people, before coming to faith in Christ, uh, were all believers in the God of Israel. Even the Gentiles, they were known as God-fearers. Uh, but as news of Jesus spread, men and women who were true Greeks, you know, true pagans and polytheists, uh, suddenly they start believing in Jesus as well. And this morning, I want to I pick up the account with Paul, Apostles Paul and Barnabas, uh, who we find here in chapter 14 in the city of Lystra, which is in a, was in a region called Galatia. It's now modern southern Turkey, modern Turkey. And what they experienced in that city is not only historically interesting, but it's relevant for us in the church. So let me just read the account for you, and then we'll talk a little bit about it, okay? Starting in uh, Acts 14, beginning in verse 8. Uh, we're told that in Lystra, there, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. 
But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, um, having heard that, you may be saying, well, that was kind of interesting, but uh, really, how can what happened so long ago, so far away in the city of Lystra be relevant to us in the 21st century American church? Well, let's think about it for a second. And let's keep in mind uh, that up until this point, the apostles and really all the followers of Jesus had been going around sharing the good news of God's grace to men and women who had already believed in the one God of Israel. They were familiar with the Old Testament and the history of the nation of Israel. But now suddenly Paul and Barnabas find themselves among a people who are very, very different. A people who believed you know, all kinds of things, had many different gods, knew nothing of the Old Testament or, or the God of Israel. And so how the apostles interact with these people is not only fascinating, but offer, or offers a picture uh, of how, how maybe we should be presenting the good news of Jesus to our pluralistic culture, where in the very same way, people, people believe all kinds of things, with many different gods, many different religions, and have little, if any, knowledge of Scripture. But here's the deal. Uh, I am not suggesting this text gives us a recipe to follow. Okay, I, I realize living in an age of technology tends to fuel our lust for techniques and methods and formulas and easy-to-follow step-by-step procedures. So please hear me when I tell you I'm not saying here is the recipe for engaging our culture. Uh, What I am saying is that what Paul and Barnabas did in this particular cultural context that was very similar to ours, how they approached people who had no awareness of Jesus and no shared belief system is, I think, informative and may help better shape our understanding of how to effectively bring the good news to people around us. So, what did Paul and Barnabas do? Well, one of the things they did was they cared for the marginalized and the needy. The text tells us that while Paul was in the city speaking to people, there was a man sitting nearby. He notices the man. He notices he was lame. Uh, uh, He had been that way from birth. He had never walked. Paul sees him, realizes he was listening, and so he calls out to the man. He says, stand up on your feet. And with that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And he was was healed. And I don't want to belabor this point because um, we've seen it throughout the book of Acts. We've talked about it, but I think it's worth noting again how Paul and Barnabas' ministry, and really the early church's ministry to the world, was not only rational in nature. It wasn't just about teaching truth. It was also experiential in nature. It was about words and deeds. I mean, certainly when you think of Jesus, you, you know that he didn't just go out and preach at people. He embraced the poor and the needy. He fed the hungry. Um, He healed the sick. Why? Because human life is both rational and experiential, and Jesus Jesus knew that. Scripture says that's why he was powerful in word and deed. You know, sometimes sometimes we in the church, as Christians, when it it comes to the idea of outreach, evangelism, you know, impacting our culture, whatever word you want to give it, whatever title you want to give it, when it comes to this idea, we tend to focus on the teaching of truth 
and cut ourselves off from the need to demonstrate the truth of God, the love of God, the grace of God, which, in my opinion, shortchanges the gospel. Uh, A 17th century French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, was a, a very intelligent and rational guy, and at one point he warned Christians in the church, he said, look, if we submit everything to reason, our faith will have no mysterious and supernatural element. If we offend the principles of reason, our religion will be absurd and ridiculous. And he was right. You say, he was right. I don't even know what he was saying. Okay, so here's what he was saying. <laughs> he, was saying he was saying Christianity is both rational and experiential. It's both and. It's propositional, it's relational. And therefore, it must be communicated through words and deeds to, to make true sense. Jesus modeled that. And, uh, and from its beginning, the church did as well. But as you, you hear the account, you read the account, you may say, well, hold on a second, man. You know, Paul, Paul he, this was a miracle. Paul healed a guy. He healed a guy. And that's true. But let's not get distracted by that because uh, while miracles were few and far between, even in the first century church, the church's everyday acts of love and kindness and generosity toward the poor and the marginalized were not. All the way back in Acts chapter 2, at the birth of the church, we're told, that, we're told how everyone shared their resources together so that no one went without. And Acts chapter 6, the church took strategic steps to ensure that the poor in the community were embraced, welcomed, and cared for. Uh, there were no miracles, just a commitment to love and serve people, all people, and especially the forgotten. And that's why we as a church are committed to doing the same thing, you know, from welcoming and embracing our homeless friends in DuPage County, to serving under-resourced families in our area, to mentoring at-risk students in schools to our east, uh, to rescuing children off the streets of Calcutta, India. We give generously of ourselves and our resources, realizing that the truth of God's love and grace in Jesus must be demonstrated, not just talked about. There's no need for miracles, just commitment generosity, kindness. However, uh, I guess I would say that in the context of a greedy consumer culture like ours, acts of radical love and generosity might be viewed as miraculous. But um, here's the point. In their pluralistic context, multi-ethnic, multi-religion, Paul and Barnabas not only took notice of, but loved and cared for the marginalized and the needy. They also uh, identified cultural idols and challenged cultural presuppositions. What do I mean by that? Well, you realize that the healing of this lame man produced a reaction in the crowd that I'm pretty sure Paul and Barnabas didn't expect, right? What happened? Uh, People started shouting, the gods have come down to us in human form. And then they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes. Why? It's simple. When they saw this incredible event, their pagan, polytheistic worldview kicked in. See, at the time, every Greco-Roman city had its own patron idols, patron deities, patron gods. And for Lystra, those deities were Zeus and Hermes. Uh, There was a temple just outside the city dedicated to Zeus. Archaeologists have found inscriptions from the area dedicated to both of these Greek gods. Um, The first century Roman poet, Ovid, in his famous work, Metamorphoses, writes about the appearance of Zeus and Hermes near the city of Lystra. 
You know, all that to say is when the men and women of that city witnessed this, this incredible miracle, they interpreted it the only way they knew how, through their polytheistic mythological lens. And so they call Paul Hermes. Hermes was considered the messenger of the gods. Uh, and since Paul did most of the talking, they called him Hermes, and they labeled Barnabas Zeus. But not only did they call these men gods, they wanted to make animal sacrifices to them. They wanted to, they wanted to worship them. They brought the bulls in, the garlands. And, and when Paul and Barnabas figure out what's happening, they, they, you know, they react and they rush into the crowd and they shouting, you know, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. You know, we're, we're, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, I don't know if, if you picked up on it. Maybe if you read ahead, uh, you, you've noticed this, but the message of good news here that Paul offers these people is very different from what we've heard him say before. Did you notice that? Uh, because in earlier chapters, Paul would stand in the streets of the city, in the synagogues of the cities, preaching to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, saying, you know, through Messiah Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. As an expert in the scriptures, he would refer to the Old Testament. He would uh, reference the prophets. He would talk about the law, just like Peter and, and, and the rest of the apostles did. And yet here, Paul doesn't do any of that. None of it. Which tells me two things. It tells me, uh, first, that there's no si uh, one-size-fits-all gospel presentation. And it also tells me that Paul wisely understood his cultural context. And he understood who these people were he was speaking to. He doesn't, he doesn't mention the Bible. He doesn't mention the Old Testament. He doesn't reference the Ten Commandments. He doesn't talk of heaven or hell or sin and salvation, at least initially, not any of that. Why? Because these people had absolutely no understanding of those things, no concept of them. They knew their Greek mythology, and they were spiritually minded, but they knew absolutely nothing of the Hebrew Scriptures or the God of Israel. And realizing that cultural dynamic, Paul doesn't announce to his listeners, the Bible says you're, you're slaves to sin and need forgiveness, which would have made no sense to them. Instead, he essentially says, I see you're enslaved by your idols and you need, for, you need uh, freedom. Paul doesn't use the common Greek term for idol here. Instead, instead he says, turn from these worthless things to the living God. And um, <clears throat> the term he uses means worthless in the sense of empty, deceptive, ineffective, lifeless. Here's my, here's my Reiki summary. Paul is saying, he's saying, look, the gods and idols you revere, you know, aren't worthy of your worship. Not really. They're lifeless, worthless, and in the end will leave you empty. Now, better grasp what was happening, perhaps we need to try and, um, try and uh, think like a polytheistic society, which shouldn't be too hard because we're living in one, right? It's a society that says there is no one supreme God, but many gods. And in that kind of a society, how do you decide which one to worship? Well, in Paul's day, you would worship and sacrifice to the God that would help you the most. 
the one who would give you the most, uh, most of what you want. So, <clears throat> in other words, if you were a soldier, you would sacrifice to the god of war. If you were a merchant, you'd sac sacrifice to the god of commerce. If you were a farmer, you'd sacrifice to the god of agriculture. If you were a sailor, sailor you would uh, sacrifice to the god of the sea. I mean, there were gods for everything. Love, money, art, you name it. And since there was no overarching allegiance to, to uh, one supreme god, basically, when people sacrificed to their deity, they really weren't worshiping the deity per se. They were really worshiping what they wanted from the deity, you see. That, that's really what pagan religions were about. It was about getting your deity to give you what you wanted. You know, you didn't, you didn't really worship them, you, but you tried to manipulate them. You tried to get them to, to, to give you, you know, victory in battle or to, to give you money or success or power or food, sex, safety, whatever. Those were the things that people really worshipped. The goal was just to get the God to give it to them. In so many respects, the same is true today. Just like in the first century, everybody lives for something. Everybody lives for something. Everybody sacrifices for something. You know, we often sacrifice for our careers. But here's the deal. Careers won't love you back. Often we, we, uh, we sacrifice for more and more money. Money doesn't save you. You know, we worship our possessions, and, but they, uh, they don't forgive us. In some cases, we worship relationships, but not even, not even relationships will ultimately satisfy us because we get in relationships and we realize we're all messed up and twisted, right? And we let each other down, we fail one another. But we all sacrifice for something. Everybody does. What do you worship? And we've just kind of eliminated the middleman. We've just taken the we've taken the actual idols out of the mix, but we're still worshiping the same people, the same thing these people did. And Paul says to them, he says, he says, look, these gods, these idols, these things that you worship and sacrifice for, aren't real. They're they're worthless. They're powerless. They're dead. But here's the good news: there is one true God, the living God who has created the universe and everything in it, and it is he who has kindly given you all that you have, rain, seasons, crops, food, even joy. Do you see what Paul was doing? <clears throat> uh, he was challenging the cultural assumptions of his listeners. And he does it by expressing biblical truth. In fact, what he says is a quote from Exodus 20 and Psalm 146. But he doesn't proclaim, the Bible says, because that would have meant nothing to these people. Nothing to them. So instead, he simply appeals to the truth of creation in an attempt, in an attempt to get them to think. To think, to engage their thinking. He doesn't beat people over the head with things they had no clue about. He takes their own beliefs and he tries to show them that they had a need for something more. And this is so important for us uh, to recognize because today in America, uh, in a, in a, with a desire and in an attempt to share the good news with our culture, so many Christians and so many churches fail to recognize that more and more and more people don't think the way we think. 
People don't believe what we believe. People don't talk the way we talk. They don't value all the things that we value, and yet we approach them as if they do, and then wonder why we're getting nowhere. They don't understand what we're talking about. In his book, Fool's Talk, <clears throat> author, thinker, Christian apologist, Oz Guinness addresses this issue. And uh, he writes how, when it comes to our 21st century pluralistic culture, that we in the church, we make assumptions about people that aren't accurate. And we're answering questions that people aren't asking. And we're using language they don't understand. And then we expect a response that just isn't realistic. Guinness writes, many of us who take the good news of Jesus seriously are eager to share it when we meet people who are open, interested, or in need of what we have to share. But we're less effective when we encounter people who are not open, not interested, or needy. In other words, people who are closed, indifferent, hostile, skeptical, or apathetic. He says, he says there are powerful theological reasons why most people aren't open and interested most of the time, and there are historical and cultural reasons why people are more closed, hostile, or indifferent in the West today than they were in the past. He says, but again and again and again, we have to face the fact that the world earlier generations knew has gone and gone for forever. There are too many people who don't want to believe what we share or even hear what we have to say. And our challenge is to help them to see it despite themselves. To help them see it despite themselves. That's the challenge. And Guinness is right. He's absolutely right. Listen, our world is a different place than it used to be. It's vastly different. So trying to start a spiritual conversation with people in our culture by telling them what the Bible says is, is fruitless. In most, people, in most cases, people just don't care. They don't care what the Bible says. It's not their frame of reference. It's not their, their source of authority. You're just speaking, you're speaking language they don't get. They don't, what are you talking about, the Bible? I don't care what the Bible says. Or going to someone with the comment, you're a sinner in need of Jesus, gets the response, hey, don't tell me what's right and wrong or what I need. America has changed. It is a pluralistic and increasingly secularized society. And the sooner that we in the Christian church recognize that and come to grips with the reality of it, the sooner we'll figure out a way to share the good news in a manner that makes sense to people and invites dialogue versus shutting it down or turning people off. Guinness offers some good ideas on how to do that. In my opinion, for what it's worth, it involves asking questions, respectfully asking questions and, and get challenging people to think. You know, a lot of people, they say, I believe this, I believe that, I believe the other thing. They haven't thought through it. Not really. You know, how often do we think deeply? We run through life crazy. You know, we don't stop and really think about things. Most people don't. And so... Asking questions, getting people to engage, asking about, you know, what do they, what do they believe about their human origin? Are they just a, you know, a freak accident of nature, just, a, a, just a, a, an amalgam of, of, a, of chemicals and biological synapses firing? Is that what they believe? Or do they believe in something? There's something more to us as human beings. Getting them to consider where morality comes from. Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Getting them to contemplate the meaning of their life, the meaning of life and death and all these things, and helping them to really evaluate, evaluate what they believe. Engaging them to think. But this is no different from the challenge that Paul faced. He recognized the idols. 
and the presuppositions of the pagan culture in which he found himself, and he attempted to reach and, approach, and he approached people accordingly. And in the process, he and Barnabas endured hardships. We're told um, that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over, um, most likely by disc- publicly discrediting Paul and, and Barnabas as, as just you know troublemakers. And then they stoned Paul, and they drag him out, outside of the city, thinking that he was dead. But apparently he wasn't. The text says that after the disciples gathered around him, he got up. And uh, his quick recovery may imply a healing miracle, but we don't know that for sure. All we know for sure is he, he did get up, went back into the city, and then he left Lystra the next day. And as he and Barnabas uh, traveled the region, continuing to share the good news of Jesus, they also encouraged believers in the, in the church uh, in various places to remain true to the faith, saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, we know what they didn't mean, right? And we know that it, they didn't mean that it's through suffering we get to heaven because that would have contradicted the good news of God's grace. That's not what they, they were talking about. What they were saying to people was, was this, look, along with the everyday suffering we all experience as human beings living in a broken world, sometimes as Christians, as followers of Jesus, sometimes we may suffer because of what we believe and who we believe in. Jesus put it this way to his followers. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. In this world, you will have trouble. And it was true. You know, as we've seen through the book of Acts, a lot of early Christians suffered because of their faith. But the way they stayed true to Jesus, despite the suffering, was shocking to onlookers. I mean, they didn't, they didn't welcome suffering. They didn't revel in it masochistically, but they endured suffering with a degree of peace, hope, joy, and confidence, the likes of which people had never seen before. In fact, many pagans came to faith just because of the way Christians handled persecution and suffering, how they faced their own death with courage. A couple weeks ago, one of our ministry partners from um, the Philippines was here, Rich Henderson, I don't know if you remember, we had him up on stage, but he was, he was telling uh, our staff how they, they have a, a, a new team member um, uh, off in the Philippines. Actually, the guy's a, he's a pastor serving churches in South, uh, Southern Asia. And uh, he's very successful and doing a great work. The church is growing in the region, but he joined their team. And they said, well, you know, you're doing great things. Why are you joining our team? He says, I want to join your team and your organization because I want to I be sure that when I'm put to death because of Jesus, somebody comes looking for my wife. <laughs> he was expecting not just hardship, he's, he's expecting to be, to be martyred because of Jesus. Now, at this point in our cultural context, our cultural experience, uh, we don't face that kind of thing. And uh, suffering because of Jesus just isn't that big a deal. But I'm thinking to myself, if we're really living for him, isn't there going to be some degree of hardship? Isn't there going to be something that's painful? I mean, even if it's the pain of sacrificing time to serve others, or, or the pain of giving generously out of our financial resources to support the work of the church and ministry in our, in our culture and around the world, something. I mean, are we experiencing and enduring hardships because of what and who we believe in. And if not, 
Why not? Then finally, in the pluralistic culture in which they found themselves, Paul and Barnabas shared the good news of Jesus by answering the longings uh, that people had. And we don't necessarily see that so much here in this situation as we're going to see it in the next couple chapters, especially chapter 17. When we do chapter 17 in a couple weeks, don't miss it. It is absolutely fascinating how Paul handles himself. But uh, we don't see it so much here. The reason we don't see it is because Paul doesn't get the chance to really answer these longings. You say, what do you, what do you mean answering longings? Well, think about it. When, the, when this lame man gets healed... Right, and the crowd, the crowd goes bananas. I mean, they go, they go nuts, and everybody starts shouting, "The gods have come to us in human form. The gods have come to us in human form." Do you see the irony in that? You see the irony? I mean, certainly Paul and Barnabas deny being gods, obviously, but the fact is, the good news they wanted to share with these people was all about deity coming to us in human form. And if Paul had had the opportunity, I'm quite sure he would have used the longing these people had to know and encounter a God on earth. He used that to tell them about Jesus. I mean, understand, because of their mythologies, the people of Lystra believed it was possible for a deity to take on flesh and blood and show up on earth. And in many respects, they were longing to see it happen, which is why they jumped to their conclusions. But do you realize, as human beings, we all have these kinds of longings? We do. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was a, a professor of mythology in England. And um, he often talked about how uh, there are certain human longings we all have, certain longings that transcend dates, times, and cultures. Uh, longing specifically in regard to supernatural beings showing up, sort of, sort of heroes showing up on earth. And he talked about how you can see it throughout the mythology of the ancient world, and you can see it in our contemporary culture. You know, people love fiction like that. People love those kind of stories. Hollywood can't seem to produce superhero movies fast enough. Why? Because we're obsessed with them. We love them. You know, whether it's Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, Iron Man, the Avengers, it doesn't make any difference. It's just fascinating to me how these, these kind of superhero narratives are so popular. You know, as human beings, we seem irresistibly drawn to and captivated by them, by this idea of a, of a supernatural being coming to Earth. Man, it just, it just resonates with us. You know, themes of, of good versus evil. Uh, mortality versus immortality, love and sacrifice, for whatever reason, these themes speak to all of us, whether we live in first century Lystra or 21st century America. Coincidence? Maybe. But Tolkien suggested otherwise. He said it signifies much more, that there's something in our collective memory, something deep within our humanness, something ingrained in our minds, our hearts, and our spirits, sort of an echo of eternity that tells us the superhero narrative is more than just myth. It's more than just fiction. It's more than just something we like. It's something we want. It's something we, as, as human beings, we're all looking for, hoping for, longing for, something we need. A divine protagonist, a true champion, a divine hero, to supernaturally come to earth and with great courage and power and love and self-sacrifice rescue us from evil and destruction. Now here's the deal. That very thing has happened. <laughs> it's not mythology. It's not fiction. It's history. It's reality. 
And Tolkien, who was all about, all about fiction, all about mythology, when writing about Jesus said this, the incarnation of God is an infinitely greater thing than anything I would ever dare to write. The story is supreme. The story, it is true. As frail and flawed human beings, we are the recipients of supernatural love, grace, goodness, sacrifice, and heroism. God has come to us in human form to love us and rescue us. And his name is Jesus. You know, um, I tell you, the, the, the comparisons that we can draw between the pluralistic world uh, of the first century and that of our own day are just, is remarkable. It's remarkable to me. And, and the question that Paul and Barnabas and the early church faced is the same one that we face. It's the exact same question we face. How can this good news of Jesus be heard amidst all the competing voices and worldviews of our pluralistic society? It's a significant question. And while there are no pat answers or simple recipes, understanding how Paul and other early Christians successfully interacted with their world and changed it through word and deed uh, can inform us and inspire us to engage humbly and creatively in this great adventure of living and translating um, the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus to our culture today. May God grant that uh, that be so. Let's pray. Our Father, it amazes me how even while history uh, grinds on day after day, month after month, year after year, and even... Uh, how things change so much. Also, things remain the same. Uh, human beings, uh, whether in first century Lystra or 21st century DuPage County, human beings, we all have the same needs and desires and longings. We're all broken. We're all in search of healing. We're all looking for those things that will do what for us what we, what we desire and, and looking for things that give us what we want, even when we don't know exactly what we should have. We haven't changed that much. And I pray this morning that, that you, would, you, would, um, you would reveal your truth to us and the fact that the idols that were pursued by people in the first century are very similar to the idols that we pursue today. Power, success, money, possessions, relationships, all those things, we're looking to uh, meet our deepest needs. In reality, they all, they're all worthless in the end. They all fail. Because only you, the living God, can satisfy. And... Um, this longing we have for a hero, a divine hero, uh, the longing can be met because the hero has come. God has come to us in human form. His name is Jesus. And we're thankful for him this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to thank you all for being with us. And one of the, one of the things I mentioned last week is, in fact, last Sunday we had 
uh, a number of people for the first time say, yeah, I, I want to be a believer of Jesus. I believe he died for me. And I just ask, maybe that's something you've done for the first time today. Maybe, maybe you have that defining moment today. If you just fill out the little tag on your bulletin, fill it out, hand it to one of the other uh, people at the info desk, and they're going to get that to me just so I can pray for you, you know, because, you know, in this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. And uh, it just gives me a chance to pray for you. But um, I hope you've made that commitment to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, hope you come back next week. Uh, we're going to continue on to see what happens next with Paul and Barnabas. And uh, I, I think you'll find it fascinating. I, I know that it's amazing to me how, this, how what they went through in the first century is the same thing we're going through today. It's crazy similar. So hopefully you find it helpful. Why don't you stand with me and, and I'll, I'll dismiss us. Let's pray. And now, Father, I pray that as your people leave this building, as the church goes back out into the world, I pray that we would go in word and deed. Because in reality, our love for people is the greatest apologetic there is. Help us to understand how to interact with folks and get people to think about what they believe. And in, the, and in, the, uh, in that opportunity at some point, be able to tell them about Jesus. May your hand of grace and peace and strength now rest on your church, your people, as we fulfill your, your mission in our world to point people to the Savior. It's in his name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.